0: A lot of tension in the air right now. I can feel it, especially this section. Let's just take a big, deep breath. Everybody just take a big, deep breath. All right, let's do that again one more time. This time, breathe in through your nose. A big, deep breath. Big, deep breath. And hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. Don't let it go yet. Feel your chest rise. And now slowly let it out through your mouth. Like half the people are participating. We gotta do that one more time, one more time. Big deep breath, now you know how it's gonna go through your nose, feel your chest rise and hold it till you feel like you're about to pass out and now slowly let it out of your mouth. Do you realize that you just sucked in about 1.2499999 septillion molecules of different gases? About 78% nitrogen, 21% oxygen, about 1% argon, not to mention a bunch of other trace elements as well. But of those many molecules, about 100, 100 of those 1.2499999 septillion molecules actually participated in some other breath of some other person. Maybe like Mozart or Julius Caesar or even Beyonce. So you, therefore, are famous just by breathing. Isn't that amazing? Our breathing is incredible. We don't even really think about it, but our breathing is incredible. Just how incredible is our breathing? Well, let's take a look at our lungs, As you inhale, your lungs are filled with air, and as they fill, about 300 million balloon-like structures called alveoli, it sounds like some type of pasta dish, but they replace the carbon dioxide waste in your blood with oxygen. And now when these structures are filled with air, your lungs can actually float on water. And when they're open flat, they cover the entire distance of a tennis court. Amazing, right? Well, as it continues, breathing is incredible. As you exhale, you breathe out roughly 0.3 septillion molecules. That's like 24 zeros on the end of that number. That's the equivalent of filling up a one liter bottle. Our breathing is linked to Pretty much all our bodily functions and processes. Nervous system, endocrine system, respiratory system, digestive system, urinary system, spinal mobility, and more. Breathing is incredible. But when God breathes, when God breathes, that's something else. That's something so profound and something so unimaginable. When God breathes, this is what it says in Psalm 33, verse six, the skies were made by the Lord's word, all their starry multitude by the breath of his mouth. So stars and solar systems and galaxies are born by the breath of God. In the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verse 2, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples after he has been resurrected, after he is raised from the dead, and it says, then he breathed on them. Now, that's weird, right? That's a little awkward, a little intimate. If you don't believe me, turn to the person next to you and just breathe on them, (sighs) like breathe in their face. (laughs) Hopefully, you brush your teeth this week. You shouldn't do that too often, right? You don't want to damage your teeth and gums, right? But that's awkward and intimate. It's weird. But he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So God imparts the Holy Spirit by the breath of his mouth. That's incredible. How about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Every scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. Well, what in the world does that have to do with breathing? I don't get it. I'm confused. It's all Greek me. Well, perfect then, because the New Testament was written in Greek, and 2 Timothy happens to be a document of the New Testament, and this is how it begins in the Greek text. Pasagrafe, all or every scripture is, and here we have this big word, theopnutas. It's an adjective that combines two Greek words together, First, the noun "theos," meaning God, and then the verb "pneu."o It's kind of weird. It's like saying an n, a p and an n at the same time. "Pneu."o to breathe. So every scripture is God breathed. That's a way that we could translate Second Timothy chapter three verse sixteen: that every scripture is God breathed. But what scripture is Paul talking about here? Because he's writing the New Testament. So he's therefore referring to what came before, which is the Old Testament. The Old Testament is inspired by God, God God-breathed. This is not to say that the New Testament is not, but the Old Testament, like really? Have you read the Old Testament? You're saying that's God-breathed, the Old Testament with all its laws and Laborious details about curtains and candlesticks and cubits of acacia wood. The Old Testament, with all its wrath and ridiculously long family trees and ridiculously long descriptions about cooking and cleaning and cursing and circumcision, the Old Testament, with all of its violence and vignettes, about strange characters and some really embarrassingly shameful stories. I don't get it. Well, today we continue our sermon series called I Don't Get It with I Don't Get the Old Testament. When it comes to the Old Testament, sometimes I just don't get it. But I'm one of those weird individuals who actually loves the Old Testament. I mean, it's bigger than the New Testament, so you gotta like it for that reason, but I think it's fascinating. I absolutely love the Old Testament. And so when people say to me, well, I don't get it. I don't like the Old Testament. It's ancient and boring and confusing. My response is, with such Christian civility and tenderness, well, you're ancient and boring and confusing. I don't often respond in that way, but I usually would say something to the effect of, well, yeah, you're right. It is ancient, first of all. And yeah, there are some boring parts. And yeah, it's really confusing too. I mean, it's an ancient document written in a foreign language about a foreign era, about foreign cultures. But it's still God-breathed. It's still God-breathed. And so we must not let our I don't get it be ending points where we say, I don't get it, so I, I just give up. I don't go to that part of the Bible. I don't touch that part. No, we should let our I don't get it become starting points where we say, I don't get it, at least not yet. My hope is today that we would gain a new appreciation, a new understanding for the relevance and significance of the Old Testament to the New Testament and ultimately our lives. So if you're able to stand today, I want to invite you to stand as we read from our memory verse for this sermon series. We stand here to revere the word of God. It's life-changing and transforming power. This is our memory verse for this sermon series, Psalm 119, verse 73, and let's read these words aloud together. All right, ready? Your hands made me and formed me. Give me understanding to learn your commands. God, this is our prayer today, that we would learn your commands, that we would learn the significance of the Old Testament and realize that you are faithful, that you are faithful throughout the generations, and that you're good and loving. Speak to us each today individually in a way that we desperately need to hear from you. I pray, Lord, that your name and your name alone would be lifted high in this place. Would our lives testify to the goodness and the greatness that you are? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And as you grab your seat, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3, or you can follow along on those green pieces of paper that hopefully hopefully you received when you walked in today. We're going to start in 2 Timothy chapter 3. And thus far in 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul has been talking to his protege, Timothy, telling him it's a dog-eat-dog world out there. And things are getting vicious. But verse 14 says, but you must continue with the things you have learned and found convincing. You know who taught you. <clears throat> that would be me, Paul. Paul. Since childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures, that's the Old Testament, that help you to be wise. So wisdom applied is a byproduct of the Old Testament. Since childhood, you have known the Holy Scriptures that help you to be wise in a way that leads to salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. So apparently, the Old Testament offers more than just More than just life skills and wisdom and that nature, but it it offers wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 16 says, every scripture, and now when Paul is talking about this every scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament, Not to say that the New Testament wouldn't later be included in this as he's looking forward. But every scripture that is the Old Testament is inspired by God or God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. So Paul, you're telling me then that the Old Testament is not just God-breathed. But that here, it's useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. That, absolutely. And I think that's rather important. So then how do we approach this idea? How do we approach this topic of trying to discover the relevance and significance of the Old Testament to the New Testament and ultimately to our lives? Well, we could start reading in Genesis and parse every single chapter and every single word of all 39 books of the Old Testament. We could start that right now here at 1146, and we'll be here for a couple months, and that would be okay, right? You don't have to work or go home or eat or anything like that. We'll just have food brought in, you know? We could do that. That would probably be the best way that we could explore the Old Testament, but For the sake of time, maybe we'll choose a different route. Maybe we could explore a familiar story of the Old Testament and see how this applies to Jesus, see how this points to Jesus. But that's just so predictable. It's so predictable, and just to familiarize ourselves with things familiar is going to keep us walking in the same old familiar road. And I think God might want to do something different today. I have a feeling like God wants to challenge us today, and so I think one of the most challenging things we could do is to explore where these two testaments collide, and in this way of trying to discover the relevance and significance of the Old Testament and the New Testament, and for our lives, we explore where these two testaments collide. Matthew chapter one, but if you know your Bibles, you realize like what Matthew chapter one—that's a genealogy. A long list of Old Testament OGs, original gangsters, right? Exactly. This is crazy. Why would anybody in their right mind do this? I don't know, because I think it's important. And I think that we will see how these individuals and their lives and their stories have great relevance and significance to the New Testament and ultimately for our lives, you know, genealogies aren't always pretty. They aren't always what we want them to be. You, know, you can't choose your, your family. You can choose your in-laws, or as I like to call them, the outlaws. And I have to tell you, my grandfather compiled a, a list of information about this, our family, couple of years ago, and it was striking. I wish he would have used some whiteout for some of these people. I really do. I really do. And you may say, well, this is like, why are we even talking about this? The Old Testament and going through a genealogy. I don't know what it is about me, but I feel like I always like to take the most challenging road. I was at Home Depot a couple of weeks ago returning some items, and I struck up a conversation with a lady who is working there, and she's there dressed in her carrot-orange apron, and with her nasally voice, she says to me, I'm a Pisces, and my horoscope says that I always like to take the easy road. And I said, well, I think that's everybody. I think that's human nature, right? Like, we always are looking for the easiest way. Like, who wants to drive in traffic? Oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to switch in this lane. There's traffic here. no. Nobody does that. Unless it's someone you're interested in, right? You're at the the grocery store and you're like, uh, there's no one in this line, but she's over here or he's over here. And I wanna spend some time getting to know this person, praying for them, right? I don't know what, I I don't do that at the grocery store. I'm married, so. um, Anyways. Uh, So it seems like, I was telling her, like, yeah, everyone wants to take the easy road, but I don't know what it is, but it always feels like I end up taking the hard road, like the most challenging way. And maybe it just comes from my family, as you'll see, of this angelic ancestry and holy history of the Kays family. On my dad's side, my ancestors came over from Cork, Ireland, they were starving on a ship called the Seaflower and had to eat six dead bodies to survive. Let's hope they didn't bring doggy bags ashore. My ancestor, George Kays, was commended for his killing of the Shawnee Indians. Love in the world, one person at a time. James Harrison, also known as Hog Kays, fought for both the Union and the Confederate Army during the Civil War. Go figure. John Kays, a Desperado railroad worker, got liquored up the night of Christmas Eve, 1887, and stabbed a black man to death. He was tried and convicted of first-degree murder and served a life sentence. Thomas Jefferson Kays, my great-great-grandfather, once had an argument with his wife, and so he picked up a chair, as any husband in their right mind would do, right, and hit her in the face and broke her nose. Later, after they separated, Tom got mad at a horse, hitting it on the nose and broke his hand. Serves him right. Pascal Kays, my great-grandfather, and his stepsister were caught kissing. Gross. She was accused of being pregnant, and they were told to get married. So much for holy history and angelic ancestry. So, we've got quite a rotten family tree. Taboo marriages, racism, treason, violence, alcoholism, murder, domestic abuse, animal abuse, and cannibalism. And that's just one side. Well, when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew in chapter one, it's startling. Here's how it begins. Matthew 1, verse 1, a record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. Do you realize that we would be completely left in the dark if we didn't have the Old Testament as to who these characters are? Like, who's Abraham? Who's David? If we never had the Old Testament, we would have no idea. We would have no bearing for who these characters are and what their significance is in the life of Jesus the New Testament, and ultimately, our lives. A record of the ancestors of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. We need the Old Testament to interpret the New Testament. I hear a a phrase going around the churches, uh, and I actually lost sleep over this the other night. I, I was tossing and turning. I couldn't get this out of my mind, where some Christians will say, I'm a New Testament Christian. Now, no offense if that's you, if you've said that before, it's okay. I'm a New Testament Christian, but I just don't understand what that means. I don't get it. I'm a New Testament Christian. And I was racking my brain over this while I was trying to sleep, and I realized it's kind of like the image of a sailboat. If I'm merely a New Testament Christian, I'm like a sailboat. I can explore all the oceans of the world, figuratively speaking, the Pacific, the Atlantic, the Arctic, the Indian, the Southern Ocean, at least on the surface and only on the surface. But if I am an Old Testament and a New Testament Christian, it's a whole lot different. I'm like a submarine. I can explore all the oceans of the world, figuratively speaking, the Pacific, Atlantic, Arctic, Indian, and Southern. Their surface and their depth I can gain deeper understanding, and I can also withstand greater pressures too. So let's dive into this list of Old Testament characters. It begins in verse 2, Abraham. Abraham, who was called by God to leave his homeland in the Ur of the Chaldeans to a new strange and foreign land that God would have him go. Abraham became a man of great faith, the father of many nations, also the husband of many wives. He was a polygamist. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, who was almost sliced and diced by his pops on the altar, was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the conniving trickster who duped his brother Esau, tricked him out of his birthright over a pot of stew and then played dress up and stole his brother's birthright as well. Well, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, who hooked up with and impregnated a prostitute who actually turned out to be his daughter-in-law. Oops, whoa, right? Right? He was the father of Perez and Zerah, twins, whose mother was Tamar, the daughter-in-law who played dress-up as the prostitute and was impregnated by her father-in-law, Judah. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Aram. Aram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Okay, I don't get it. This is weird, you know, a list of strange people with strange names. We've got prostitutes and polygamists. We have conniving tricksters and crazy baby names here. Like, what does this all mean? How is this related to the New Testament and our lives today? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 says it's useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and training character so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. We can learn something from people who have come before us, even people like Aminadab or Salmon. Well, what in the world can we learn from these people? What is so special about Aminadab and Salmon? Well, for one, they were important enough to be mentioned in the Bible, both Old Testament and New Testament. And secondly, even if they're just mentioned as being the father of so-and-so, being the father of so-and-so might be a really big deal because so-and-so might have turned out to be quite a big deal. Text continues in verse five by saying, Salmon was the father of Boaz. See, told you. Boaz, a big deal, whose mother was Rahab, the treasonous prostitute who helped the Israelite spies take down her own hometown of Jericho. Boaz, who was the dreamy bachelor who was love struck by Ruth, was the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, the heroine of every women's Bible study the Moabite foreigner, and also the winning contestant on the bachelor Old Testament style. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse, who apparently was a good, good father because God came to him and was gonna be like, hey, one of your eight sons is going to be king. That's pretty cool. Jesse was the father of David, the king. And just like that, we've gone from Hezron to high king. We've gone from the panhandling prostitute Mighty monarch. What can we learn from these stories? How are they relevant and significant to the New Testament and to our lives? Well, 2 Timothy chapter three verse sixteen says that their stories are useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting and training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. The list continues in verse six b through eleven. David the brave warrior, right, the mighty king, also the adulterer, the murderer, and the polygamist. He was the father of Solomon whose mother, the outdoor bathing Bathsheba, had been the wife of Uriah. Key words there, had been the wife of Uriah because if you know the story, David had Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, snuffed out. Indirectly, as soon as she got pregnant. Bad move on David's part there. Verse seven says, Solomon, the wise playboy and polygamist, and later he became a polytheist. His legacy is not so shining. It ended up in the complete separation of the united monarchy and civil war. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the king of Judah, who thanks to dad, was now dealing with civil war and a split within the country. Rehoboam was the father of Abijah. Abijah, the king of Judah, was the father of Asaph. Asaph, the king of Judah who had foot disease, was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, was the father of Joram. Joram, the king of Judah who felt the need to kill all six of his brothers, was the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah is actually a good guy. He started off great until his pride got in the way. And you know how often that happens? Like all the time. You know, you cannot lift up yourself and Jesus at the same time. That's what I tell myself every single time I come up on this stage. You cannot lift up yourself and Jesus at the same time. It's impossible. Well, Uzziah was lifting up himself and, and his pride got in the way, and he was struck with leprosy. Bummer. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the king of Judah, was the father of Ahaz. Ahaz was an evil king who practiced child sacrifice, tossing his baby on a burning altar to worship foreign pagan gods. Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a righteous king of Judah whose sweeping religious reforms completely changed the spiritual landscape. Hezekiah was the father of the bad boy Manasseh. Manasseh, probably the most evil king of Judah, turned back all of these religious reforms and too practiced child sacrifice. Manasseh was the father of Amos, also known as Ammon. Ammon, who had a very short reign of two years before he was assassinated. Ammon, also known as Amos, was the father of Josiah. Josiah, who became the King of Judah at a ripe old age of eight years old. He did a great job of reviving the faith of the nation. And he compiled and preserved the Hebrew scriptures. So without Josiah, we might not have the Bible as we have it today. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers. This was at the time of the exile to Babylon. So let's just take a big, deep breath. Wake up, take a little stretch. Big, deep breath. Now we experience the exile, 587 to 539, and back to it. Verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who led the exiles back from Babylon to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple, was the father of Abiud. Abiud was the father of Eliakim. Eliakim was the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok. Zadok was the father of Akim. Akim was the father of Eliad, Eliad was the father of Eleazar. Eleazar was the father of Mathan. Mathan was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph. We made it to the New Testament, and you're still with me, most of you. Most of you still with me. Joseph, we made it to the New Testament the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the exile, and 14 generations from the exile to Babylon to the Christ. Let's all just take a big, deep breath. Do you realize that 100 of those 1.2499999, Septillion molecules of gas may have participated in a breath of Jeconiah or Uzziah or even King David. And if these individuals are relevant and significant, at least on a biological level, then their stories their stories certainly are practical for us today. Practically speaking, Jesus had a rotten family tree. Let's take a look. If you thought my family tree was rotten, Jesus's family tree we just looked at was even more so. The people included in Jesus's lineage had serious issues, but the Matthian author, he had the audacity, the boldness to put all of these scandalous characters at the very beginning of his gospel. Now, this should remind us that this is a story, the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is a story for everyone, and everyone should know the good, the bad, and the ugly truth is here being revealed. This is not a complete list of have-it-togethers, but it's quite the opposite. And thank God that he did not so love the world that he gave his one and only son to be born into a perfect, polite, 2.5 kids, white picket fence SUV driving family of the year. Praise God for that. You may say, well, why? Like, why didn't God do something different? Couldn't God have worked around some of these individuals? Why didn't God do something different? Like, there are a lot of undesirables in this list. I, I could white out Manasseh, Ahaz, and all these people that we don't want in the lineage of Jesus, but still happen to be. Like, why, God, would you not go around them? Well, why would God go around it if he can work right through it? And in our lives, we wonder that all the time. Like, God, take me out of the situation. Get rid of this person who's bothering me. Destroy all this stuff that is holding me back from really experiencing you. And maybe God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm not gonna work around it. I'm gonna work right through it. So buckle up. Put your big boy pants on. Put your big girl panties on and let's go. Because that's what this is about. We're not gonna work around it. We're gonna work right through it. Did he just say panties on stage? Yeah, he did. (laughs) I don't know what you say for girls, but big boy pants, girls, whatever. <laughs> you're awake. I was just checking to see if you're awake or not. I don't know. But Jesus' rotten family tree, it continues here. His genealogy is rife with super spiritual and super scandalous folks. Sometimes these folks are one in the same. It's not just black and white. It's not just good people and bad people. Sometimes these folks are one and the same, and the Old Testament shows us this quite clearly. The Old Testament shows us people who just don't have it all together, but their stories are useful for teaching, for showing mistakes, for correcting, and for training character, so that the person who belongs to God can be equipped to do everything that is good. So what? So What? Like, what in the world does this have to do with the relevance and significance of the Old Testament to the New Testament and ultimately to my life? So what? Well, in the Old Testament, I see the coming of the promised Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Anointed One that had to be from the royal line of David. That means David and Solomon and Rehoboam and Abijah. And all that is contingent on Jesse and Obed and Boaz and Salmon. Told you he was important, right? It's contingent on that. Matthew's genealogy proves that Jesus ascended not only from Abraham, the father of the Israelite nation, but also to David, the founder of Israel's royal dynasty. In the Old Testament, I see a track record of God's faithfulness working through the generations. In the Old Testament, I see God interacting with people by his steadfast love and wrath, by tender mercy and unmatchable power. In the Old Testament, I see Jesus. On every single page, in every single word, the famous phrase of the prophets, thus says the Lord, also means thus says Jesus. Thus says the Holy Spirit, because our God is a triune God, co-equal and co-eternal, indivisible. In the Old Testament, I see salvation. And now some people think that, well, salvation, yeah, that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I believe that, and then I go to heaven. Well, salvation is so much more. Salvation is God's saving activity throughout our history, our time, our space, throughout eternity that ultimately culminates in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. In the Old Testament, I see people like me, people who are broken and scarred, the "I don't have it togethers. And that's why I appreciate the Old Testament so much, that it's full of these people. And I look at these people, and I have so much hope. I look at the successes, I look at the failures, I look at the struggles. Of these old testament, I don't have it togethers. And it gives me hope because I realize that if Abel can be sacrificial, I can too. If Abigail can be wise, why can't I? If Daniel can be prayerful, why can't I? If Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel can stand firm when everything is falling apart, when everyone's against them, why can't I? If Moses can stand up to the authorities, why can't I? If Elijah can perform miracles, then why can't I? If Joseph can be good, why can't I? If Abraham can be faithful, why can't I? If Hannah can worship, why can't I? If Job can walk in the light, why can't I? Who's stopping you? In the Old Testament, I see a mirror. I see a mirror and I see myself in it. I see myself in it. I see that man, I am a person who does not have it together. And I think that this is a church of people who just don't have it together. We're from all walks of life, all different types of struggles. And we're walking through this life together as the people of the Old Testament were, traveling through the wilderness, going through this period of sometimes frustration, a lot of times joy, sometimes starvation, A lot of times, abundance. And we're going through this life together. And it feels sometimes that we're walking in the darkness, but maybe we just need to open our eyes and refocus and recalibrate ourselves to see there you are, God. You know, the people of the Old Testament, when they were wandering in the wilderness, they were following a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. what we need, and that's what we have in Jesus. So the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 2, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in a pitch dark land, light has dawned. For you have made the nation great. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. As those who divide plunder rejoice. As on the day of Midian, you've shattered the yoke that burdened them. The staff on their shoulders and rod of their oppressor. Because every boot of the thundering warriors and every garment rolled in blood will be burned, fuel for the fire. A child is born to us. A son is given to us and authority will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be vast authority and endless peace for David's throne and for his kingdom, establishing and sustaining it with justice and righteousness now and forever. The zeal of the Lord of heavenly forces will do this. God has done this. God has been faithful from age to age. He's been faithful in the past and we see this with the Old Testament. We see his track record. Yes, God, you are faithful. And you never strayed from your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy and your love. And now we experience God in the present. And we say, God, I don't understand what is going on in my life. I don't understand the circumstances, the news media, whatever is happening. I do not understand it. But I know and I trust that you are faithful because you have been faithful in the past. So you will remain faithful. It's who you are, God. And I trust and believe in the situation when I can't see anything but darkness, that the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And I'm still seeing it. And I can see it into the future that God will redeem, that God will restore, that God will ransom and bring us back to him. For God is faithful. And he always has been. He always will open up the Old Testament, man. Dig into it and see the faithfulness of God come alive in your life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are holy and mighty and good. That you are the God that we need, that we depend upon. Salvation is in your hands. And I pray, Lord, that if someone in here today wants to experience you for the very first time, that they would pray, Jesus, son of David, son of Abraham, come into my life. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin and for my shame. But you rose again, defeating death once and for all. So come into my life and be my king and may I live for you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.